Well, thank you, Pastor, once again for the opportunity to study and to look into God's Word and to come that we might study together uh, the Word of God. Open your, open with me tonight. I would say your Bibles, but I'm going to actually tell you to open your encyclopedia of truth and learning. <laughs> Amen? I don't mean Britannica. I don't mean Compton's or even Wikipedia. There is only one source of truth and real learning, and that is, of course, our Bibles. Our text tonight is going to address a matter of greatness and ambition. I have titled tonight's message, for those that are taking notes, Aspiring for Greatness. Aspiring for Greatness. There are certainly traits and characteristics that are admirable, and I think that Greatness and ambition would be some of those admirable traits if those traits are sought and pursued in a God-honoring way. However, far too often, and I think you can probably attest to this just as I can, greatness and ambition are oftentimes driven by self-centered pride. I will be great. I have great ambition and I am going to succeed. That's the kind of an idea there. It's driven by self-centered pride. It's the same kind of an issue, actually, that caused one time a beautiful angel named Lucifer to embrace and pursue an I will attitude. The problem, though, was that his ambition was not to merely be more holy for God's glory. He desired to be more holy than God and to be worshipped more than God. Aspiring for greatness is not inherently evil. We're just going to say that. We've talked, we just talked about Lucifer and how his ambition got him thrown out of heaven, forever condemned, and will eventually be locked away for eternity in the bottomless pit. Aspiring for greatness, however, is not inherently evil. Just as having money and material goods is not inherently evil in and of themselves. But when pride enters and the aspiration becomes lustful, then we had better recall God's words to a man named Cain in Genesis chapter 4 when he said, If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Now we can find... We can find all manner. If you were to go looking for inspirations, we can find all kinds of inspirations when it comes to aspiring for or, or having an ambition for greatness or success. Sometimes that inspiration is, well, it's decent. You know, sayings that we come across might be pretty good. But other times, the inspiration really kind of leans hard into that self-centeredness. Now, I've looked up some... There's a whole bunch that you can find out there, and I'll tell you, most of them aren't worth reading. But I have looked up some of these greatest ambition quotes, and I'll, I'll read just a few of them. 
Uh, some of these people I don't even know, but that's okay. I don't need to know them. Marcus Aurelius said that a man's worth is no greater than the worth of his ambitions. Yikes. Clearly, Marcus Aurelius does not know what man's worth is to God. Man's worth is no greater than the worth of his ambitions, he said. Another one. This one's actually pretty good. Maya Angelou, you know who she is. The desire, her quote, is the desire to reach for the stars is ambitious. The desire to reach hearts is wise. Anthony Trollope, again, I don't know the, don't know the name, but Anthony Trollope says, it is a grand thing to rise in the world. The ambition to do so is the very salt of the earth. It is the parent of all enterprise and the cause of all improvement. Uh, I'm not sure where I want to go with that one. We'll just leave it be as, as he has uh, made that quote. Uh, Herbert Armstrong says that ambition is more than mere desire. It is desire plus incentive, determination, will to achieve that desire. Oscar Wilde, the author. Oscar Wilde said, Our ambition should be to rule ourselves, the true kingdom for each one of us. And true progress is to know more and be more and do more. That sounds like an author's statement, I suppose. I don't know. One more. There's a whole bunch, but one more. The French military leader and uh, political personality, Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon once said, it's actually not bad. It's actually a pretty decent statement, but Napoleon Bonaparte said, great ambition is the passion of great character. Those endowed with it may perform very good or very bad acts. All depends on the principles which direct them. That's not a bad statement. And it's pretty accurate. Well, as I mentioned a minute ago, the real source of truth and learning and, and frankly, inspiration is God. And we have it right here in our Encyclopedia of Truth and Learning, our Bibles. Now turn with me, if you're not already there, you know where we're going is Mark chapter 10. Turn with me in your Bibles, in your encyclopedias to Mark chapter 10. Jesus speaks to the subject of greatness and ambition through his interaction with a couple of men that are known by the name the Sons of Thunder. You know who that is, yes? James and John, the Sons of Zebedee. Mark chapter 10, and follow along, we're going to start in verse number 35. Verse number 35. Bible here says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, that's Jesus, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldst do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand, and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Ye can, can ye drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized, withal ye shall be baptized. But 
to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, that's the other ten disciples, when the, the, when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now from this text tonight, I believe we'll be looking at three main points. First, we're going to look at a bold ambition. Then we're going to look at a blind confidence. And then thirdly tonight, we'll look by God's grace at a better emulation. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, as we look to this message, aspiring for greatness. Lord God, your word is true. Lord God, may it be your Holy Spirit that fills each one of our hearts and each one of us tonight. Lord, may it be your word that is heard tonight, not the comments by this sinner saved by grace, but may the Holy Spirit of God lead us into the truth that is your word. Lead us into the understanding that while we can aspire for greatness, we must do it according to your will and according to your word. Father God, won't you guide and direct tonight in this message. May you be glorified. May Jesus Christ be exalted. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So looking at a bold ambition. It is well known that as children of the living God, redeemed by the blood of Christ and adopted by God to be a co-heir with Christ, that we have been granted to ask of God that which we will. We have been told so. And in the book of Hebrews, right in the middle of what we know as chapter number 4, we are told that we are to come boldly to the throne of grace. Well, in our text tonight, these brothers, James and John, now, I don't believe that they were carrying around copies of Hebrews to refer to, but there is no doubt in reading the text that they were very bold in their statement to Jesus. In verse 35, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldst do for us whatsoever we desire. Now, I, I don't know. Perhaps they were emboldened after hearing and having heard a few times about the lack of faith that they demonstrated. We remember that over the last course of this study that the disciples have been told a number of times, Oh, ye of little faith. Maybe they finally said, You know what? We're going to show some faith now. I don't know. Coupled with the conversation that Jesus had just had with them regarding their purpose for going up to Jerusalem. You recall from last week and just, uh, uh, just prior to, to this text tonight. In verse 33 of Mark chapter 10. Jesus said, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes. And they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. So perhaps coupling the, the history that they've got with Jesus and now this last conversation then all of a sudden Jesus said very soon I will be dead 
Although I think they forgot that last statement that I will rise again the third day. But I don't believe that the disciples really understood what all that meant. I think they were more focused on Jesus is going to be taken away from us. So perhaps, perhaps, James and John said, you know what, if we want something, Jesus said that we can just ask whatever we will. We're going to ask. Jesus, we want to sit on your left hand or on your right. Now, I, I believe it's clear that the disciples really did not have an outright understanding of all of what Jesus said that he would rise again. That, I don't think they understood that. They, they as much debated that from time to time. So maybe they could have been thinking they should ask now before it was too late and Jesus was taken away. Whatever their motivating force, whatever it was that caused James and John to come to Jesus and say, hey, do for us what we desire. Jesus did not respond in the way that I suspect some of us might have responded. There was no, how dare you? There was no, uh, who do you think you are to ask me a question like that? There was none of that. Rather, Jesus simply exemplified the scriptural precept found in Proverbs chapter 18 and verse number 13, which says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame to him. How often do we fail to resist that temptation to jump on something, some little thing that someone says or does? <gasps> I can't believe you said that. How could you possibly say it without even understanding what was really being said? <gasps> I can't believe they did that. Why would they do something like that? Well, we don't know the whole story, but we're so quick to jump on things sometimes. But Jesus said, what would you that I should do for you? You see, we jump on things so quickly without having the full context or even, quite frankly, when we have nothing to do with what's being said or done, we just simply see it or overhear it. <gasps> Did you know what they just said? They're having a conversation to somebody else. What are you doing listening in? But we sure want to be busybodies and we sure want to be nosy about what's going on. And <gasps> what did they say? I, didn't, I need to hear what they said. I, why? Well, our great example here, our Savior, Jesus, the one whom we are being taught and we are being shaped to reflect, that one, that Savior of ours, Jesus simply asked, what would ye that I should do for you? In verse number 36. And then, of course, look in your text, verse number 37 answers the question. They said unto him, grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand and the other on thy left, in thy glory. Now, yes, it was a rather bold ambition to ask for such a thing. But I believe that it may have been born out of their desire to be always as close to their master and savior as they could be. They weren't overbearing in their statement. They weren't demanding, if you look at the text, they said, grant that we may. They did not say, Jesus, we've been with you from the start. We've been as close to you, closer than anybody else we deserve. No, they didn't do that. Grant that we may. 
We want to be close to you. If you're going to be going to glory, we want to be close to you as possible for all of eternity. Grant that we might sit on your left hand and right hand for all of eternity in glory. So they weren't demanding. They certainly were not saying that we will sit on your right and your left sides no matter what. They simply let the request be made known to the Lord as we find in Philippians chapter 4. We talked about that Wednesday night. I wonder... I wonder if, if we as Christians might do well to set our own spiritual ambitions just a little bit higher than I'm saved and I'm safe. That's all I need. Boy, maybe our ambitions ought to be a little bit higher than that. Because that, that, that idea that I'm saved and I'm safe and that's good enough that really does not fulfill our commission to be witnesses unto Christ very well, now does it? I'm saved, I'm safe, that's all I need. Well, Jesus said, you're going to be witnesses unto me in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. I'm saved and I'm safe, that's all I need. I just, I got my ticket. I'm going to be comfortable with that. I'm going to be complacent and, I, and I'm not going to stir anything up. That's, that's not what we're calling for. You know, perhaps putting a little bit more ambition and a little more action to our faith might just produce some amazing blessings and some opportunities for God to, or for us to give testimony of God's working in and through our lives. We just need to make sure that if we're going to set a higher ambition, and I think we ought to, we just need to make sure that the motives behind our ambitions are indeed God-honoring. Having high ambition is not a problem. We need to do it so that God is glorified, so that God is honored. Which brings us really to the second point, a blind confidence. Now, what in the world? Where does he come from? Pastor, you might want to have a conversation with him. He's getting some really strange things. Blind confidence. Getting back to our text, James and John have made their request. So let's look then at Jesus' answer. Look in verse 38. Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And look at verse 39. And they said, We can. Well, sure we can. We can. We, yeah. Why, why not? Well... I've outlined this particular point as blind confidence for just a couple of reasons. First, Jesus said to these brothers, you know not what you ask. And it was not because they didn't know what they desired. They knew what they desired. They wanted to be close to the Savior. They wanted to be close to the Master in, in His glory. They apparently wanted to simply be near Christ because, perhaps because it was a, a place of demonstrated affection. They loved Jesus. They wanted to be near Jesus. No, Jesus' response here, you know not what you ask, was because James and John really did not have the understanding of how God's will determines those things that happen. It's not a merit-based assignment. It's not a first-to-ask-gets-the-post kind of a thing. Just because they ask first doesn't mean they get it. That's not how God works. In fact, Jesus does 
give them a better understanding. He does disclose just how God works in the matter. Look at verse number 40. He says, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. It shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. That's how God works. Now the second part of Jesus' response in verse 38 is also indicative, I believe, of the limited understanding that the disciples had concerning Jesus' impending crucifixion and resurrection. I believe the disciples only understood that the cup that Jesus referred to, the cup that Jesus would drink of, was simply the persecution and the death. Because he just spoke of that. That's the cup that he's going to drink of. And I believe that their understanding was that, well, yeah, he's going to die. Yes, we're going to die also. Sure, we're disciples of his. He's already told us that we're going to suffer persecution. So, yes, we can drink of that same cup. But it was a very limited understanding. And I believe that their understanding of the baptism that Jesus spoke of was limited to a couple of things. One, the physical baptism of John, of course, in the Jordan River. And secondly, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that abode upon Jesus to open his understanding of spiritual matters and insights. Now remember, a few chapters ago, Jesus had called the twelve to him and gave, him po- gave them power to preach and power to heal and power over unclean spirits. That was a very small segment of what they were going to be able to do. They had not yet received the Holy Spirit of God as Jesus had when he was baptized. Remember that the Holy Spirit descended as a dove and lighted upon Jesus. So, of course, I believe that with that imperfect understanding, they were, in fact, absolutely confident that they could walk a spiritual life that was pleasing to God. Yes, they would suffer persecution. Yes, they were going to be baptized. And what I believe they didn't understand was that Jesus was going to be, well, we'll call it baptized of sorts, in that he would take upon himself the sin of the whole world in perpetuity. The disciples would not be baptized with that. Jesus would. Not only would Jesus take on the sin of those of his day, but for all who would come after him until God would do away with sin altogether. And this cup that Jesus would drink of would be, in fact, the wrath of God for all of that sin. I think that the disciples looked at it as the cup that he drank of. Yes, he was going to be persecuted and then he was going to be killed. Sure, we could drink of that cup. But in fact, they didn't understand that Jesus would take all of the wrath of God on himself in our place and in theirs so that they and we could be reconciled and made right with the holiness and the righteousness that is God the Father in Trinity. Jesus, though, in his gracious response, he did acknowledge that indeed, he said, yea, indeed, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with, all ye shall be baptized. He did acknowledge that they would suffer some of the same persecutions, and for some they would suffer crucifixion as well. Indeed, as apostles, they would in fact face 
the kind of rejection and evil perils because they claimed the name of Christ. And yet, as we've already seen, that does not generate any kind of special favors from God that James and John were asking that they might sit on the right hand and left hand of, God, of Christ. So when Jesus finished his response, look what happened in verse number 41. Jesus finishes his response to them. And verse 41 says, when the ten heard it, oh, they began to be much displeased with James and with John. Oh, they were upset. Brings us to our third point. A better emulation. What does that mean? Well, verses 42 and 43, they go on to give us the sense of why perhaps the disciples, you know, the, the other ten, were getting upset with James and John. Verses 42 and 43, the Bible here again says, But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. You see, I think it may have seemed to the ten like James and John were, were vying for some position of authority in glory. Some position of authority over them, as a matter of fact. Either these other ten were, were just upset because James and John were so forward to ask that, or they presumed incorrectly that, that these two thought themselves to be deserving of such an honor. Well, it would seem that those ten kind of jumped on it. They kind of jumped on these other two without understanding the whole of the situation. I don't know that they heard James and John ask. They heard Jesus' response. Maybe they heard it. But they didn't respond until after they heard what Jesus said. But again, Jesus here interceded. And if we look at it, Jesus turned this into a valuable time of teaching. Rather than letting it get out of hand and the other ten be getting so upset and them infighting amongst themselves, Jesus said, you know that the Gentiles do this. They exercise lordship. They exercise authority. But amongst you, it shall not be so. You see, acting like the rest of the world, who is full of lost, self-serving individuals, is not the way it should be for followers of Christ. He said in verse 43, But so shall it not be among you. Yes, Jesus was addressing the matter of exercising authority and rule and lordship over each other. But doesn't the principle hold true for us believers as well? We ought not to be acting like the rest of the world who is self-serving. So it ought not to be amongst us. We ought to be different. We ought to act differently. We ought to think differently from the world around us. Jesus said that if we want to be truly great, if that is our ambition, then we must, what did he say? Minister to others. Not exert ourselves over them in any kind of uh, authoritative way. Verse 44 goes on to say that true honor is due those who put themselves into the service of others and not just a few. Look at what he says in verse 44. He says, And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. In other words, 
Greatness does not come because you're in some position. Greatness comes the more you serve others. That's true greatness. True greatness indeed is not measurable by bank accounts, by net worth, by the sum of all possessions. True greatness is not measurable by how many might be under our charge if we happen to be in a position of authority. God sees a heart of compassion and service to others as greater than all of this. That's what Jesus said. Jesus then finishes this conversation again in verse number 45. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. In fact, if in fact the disciples viewed Jesus as their master, which they did, they viewed him as we should, as the greatest man to walk the earth. Then they should look nowhere but to Jesus as their standard and as their example. And so it is for us. To close tonight, consider, if you will, just a couple of things. Aspiring for greatness is very admirable and it's achievable and it's a noble goal. It's not wrong to have bold ambitions as long as they agree with the whole counsel of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, we ought to be bold as we go to the throne of grace. But, here's that word but, let us also rightly look at and apply the rest of that verse. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Not to go setting ourselves up for grand success in glory, but to find grace to help in time of need. If we need help, God says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Let your cares, let your requests be made known unto God. Serve others. Be a servant to all. God will reward that. And while the disciples may have been somewhat limited in their understanding, they were indeed confident in Christ and in his word. Their confidence might have been just a little bit blinded. But friends, ought not we who have the full manuscript, we have the full revelation of God, ought we not who also have the whole counsel, who also have the indwelling Holy Spirit, have a much fuller confidence in Jesus Christ? And in what God can do if we're willing to let him do it. Knowing that it is that same Holy Spirit of God that will guide us. What does the Bible say? Into all truth. Jesus is that far better than all else example that we, as we study and learn, can emulate. 
so that others can see Christ in us, so that they can see our good works. And what does Matthew 5 say? And glorify our Father, which is in heaven. That is the greatness for which we ought to be aspiring. Amen? Pastor, would you close? Don't you get your marching orders? Let's go out there and let's minister one to another. Praying for one another, serving one another is all part of ministering one to another. And we ought not to ever look at someone and say, eh, our personalities clash. Yeah. Not about, that's not about ministry. Ministry is doing regardless. Amen? Yeah. Father, we thank you for this time we can be together tonight. We pray for traveling mercies on the way home. But Father, we pray that we will all, from the pulpit to the pews, tonight realize that that is our mission in part is to minister to be ministers ministers to one another and lord there are various needs that are represented here from health issues to financial i'm sure to emotional and etc and so lord in those areas that we can be of a great source of help may we minister as we're allowed to do and father will give you the praise for the work you do through us on the behalf of the brothers and sisters in the lord in jesus name we pray Amen. Amen. Amen.